Fantastic. Well, last week I had problems with the microphone. This week I threw the iPad. Who knows what's going to happen next week? So it's all good. I'm loving this series, and I've been looking forward to every week, but I've been looking forward to this week, week three, and the title of our series is After the Fire, and we're looking at God's work of rebuilding. And I'm so thankful, aren't you, that God is not just a builder, but he's a rebuilder. That actually God can rebuild some things that have been lost when hope or despair comes, when hope gets lost and despair comes in our lives. I am so grateful that God can rebuild hope in our lives. Uh, We all know times of defeat in our lives, but I'm so glad that God can rebuild victory. He can turn it around. And we've talked about how God is a rebuilder of vision and passion in our lives. Last week, we talked about how God rebuilds order. He actually can rebuild, you know, when there's been seasons of fire and chaos and disruption. He can rebuild our participation in the kingdom of God. And I believe in 2022, that's what God is going to do. He's going to rebuild the church and our participation in the kingdom of God. And then this morning, I want to talk about God rebuilding joy. I think if we need anything at this moment, it's a good dose of joy, don't you? So good. Well, of course, um, in this story, Nehemiah, it's the last story in the Old Testament. It's in the middle of our kind of Old Testament scriptures, but it's the last story in the Old Testament around 400 years before Jesus comes. And Nehemiah has this vision from God to rebuild the city walls. The people have started going back. They've begun to settle. The temple has been rebuilt, but they're still in a desperate state. And so Nehemiah wants to do something that's really going to help. And he gets this vision to rebuild the walls. And the people get involved. And the people rise up and play their part. And they say, let us rise and build which is a fantastic thing. And throughout this period of rebuilding, though, there's opposition, and there's always opposition to the work of God. But one of the great things is that Nehemiah refuses to lose focus. In fact, one of the key verses in the whole book is Nehemiah 6 and verse 3. And we mentioned it last week where Nehemiah had these people opposing him and saying, come and chat to us, come and talk to us. And he says this, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I think that somebody came to church today just for that. Note that actually you're not to be distracted from what God has called you to do. You're doing what God's called you to do and it's a great work. Don't come down. Keep going. Keep going forward. As I said, there was opposition to Nehemiah all the way through um, this period of rebuilding. But the walls did get rebuilt. Actually, it got rebuilt in just under eight weeks, 52 days. And they decide, as you would, to celebrate. That actually, we've rebuilt the walls. Everybody's played their part. God showed us favor. And we've got to this place. Now, let's have a celebration. So I want to read... Some verses that talk about that to us today. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. If you've got your Bibles or your devices, you can follow along there or it'll be on the screens. It says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. 
They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. That's the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, six hours, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Matehiah. Some of these names are going to be fun. Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Ilkiah, and Marseah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Milkiah, Ashum, Ashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. I should have got somebody else to read it, shouldn't I? Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing on above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands. Just picture that. He's just reading the Bible. And they lift their hands, and they worship, and they responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, more names, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabethai, Adiah, Marseah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Anan, and Paliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Now when we think of holy, we think of somber. But look what they say. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Would you say it with me? Come on, after three, one, two, three. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Have you ever done something that didn't get the response you were looking for? I remember some years ago deciding to, uh, we needed to lay a carpet in our front room. And I remember being, we were given a carpet. We were, had some favor and Jeannie must have gone out, I think, to the shops with Nathan. And I decided it was time for me to lay this carpet. I got a Stanley knife and I'm still alive to tell the story. And uh, I got this carpet and I laid this carpet. And at the end, I was so proud of myself. I'd finished the job. I'd done it. The carpet was down. Like, because I'm, I'm not a handy person, really, at all. I've become more handy, but not really. That's not my thing. And, uh, and I, I am so proud, and I'm so pleased, and I think Jeannie will be so happy 
when she comes back. Well, she came back, and I expected Jeannie to be thrilled, to praise my efforts. Instead, she saw the quality of the workmanship. She saw the waves for edges. Uh, she saw a bump here and there in the carpet. Let's just say she was not overwhelmed. She was underwhelmed. Nehemiah has had this incredible journey. He got agreement from the king to rebuild the walls. He gets the favor of the king. Letters from the king to other kings to help Nehemiah supply and supply provisions. And they did it. The people in Jerusalem respond and they say, let us rise and build. Nehemiah, as we've said already, stayed focused on the work. And in just under eight weeks, they overcame all the opposition to the work of rebuilding and the walls are finished. And now they gather to celebrate. But as they gather and Ezra reads the law, reads the law to remind them that they're God's special people. Reads the law to remind them of who they belong to and who they are. That they're called by God's name. But instead of rejoicing and celebrating, they're weeping. And so Nehemiah has to say to them the words we've read. Do not mourn. Do not grieve. This day belongs to the Lord. It's holy. It's set apart for the Lord. Don't grieve. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send to those who don't have any prepared. This day is holy and the joy of the Lord is your strength. He has to remind them that the joy of the Lord is their strength. You see, not only does God rebuild vision or order in our lives, he rebuilds joy. And I love that because we can go through seasons of weeping. We can go through seasons of mourning. We can go through seasons that seem dark. But I know I'm speaking to somebody. God is a God who still rebuilds joy in our lives. And he is keen on doing it. In fact, he is desperate to do it. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We need reminding like they needed reminding of that today. You see, as humans... <clears throat> they did what we do. We default to shame. As the law was read by Ezra, people just saw their failings. As the law was read, they could see the people that they were meant to be. And that didn't match up with the people that we were. They would remember that the exile happened because they hadn't followed God's ways as they were instructed in previous generations. They probably felt that they deserved God's wrath and God's judgment and not God's mercy. The promises of blessing in Deuteronomy that Ezra would have read to them made them feel like we've missed it. And so they wept. We're not the head, we're the tail. Deuteronomy told them that they would be blessed going out and that they would be blessed coming in. And they thought we've missed it. They didn't feel like the people that were being described in the reading of Ezra. They weren't the head. They felt like the tail. They weren't the people who had come out of Egypt with a great victory and spoils from the land. They weren't feeling like a people who had overcome their struggles and settled in the promised land. A people who subsequently prospered under the kingly rule of David and then under Solomon even more so. 
they felt somehow disconnected with this story of God and his people. And we can feel like that sometimes in our lives too. The reading of the law brought back memories how they ignored the prophets in previous generations who encouraged them and instructed them to serve the Lord with gladness. In the moment of celebration, they felt shame. And we can feel like that too because we default to shame. We can focus on, on our unworthiness or how unworthy we feel. We can focus on our mistakes. We find it easy to default to that position of shame. People say things, some of your friends, and maybe you once said this, people say things like, if you really knew me and you knew the kind of person I am, you'd know that God wouldn't love me. You'd know that God wouldn't want anything to do with a person like me. We default to shame. But we don't just default to shame, we default to cynicism as well as humans. You see, even though they've settled back in the land, even though God has fulfilled his promise 70 years and you'll be back, even though they've rebuilt the temple, and even though they've just had this miraculous provision and rebuilt the wall, it's still not quite what they expected. They're still thinking, well, it was better back then. Look what God did back then. As Ezra reads, they're thinking, yeah, they were the good old days. Remember them? In fact, just 70 years earlier, as uh, people had begun to settle and as the temple had begun to be rebuilt, two prophets got involved in rebuilding the temple and prophesying at the same time. One was called Zechariah and one was called Haggai. And around 70 years before this moment that we've read about, he said this in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant you peace. They had so many expectations of what God would do. And the prophets have prophesied, it's going to be better now. The best is yet to come, is our guy's prophecy. It's going to be better. The glory of this house, of this season, is going to be better than the glory of the former season. But they weren't seeing it. People couldn't see it yet. And they hadn't fully got the expectation that God could do this. And I think we do the same. There's a deep cynicism in Western culture. So much so that we quickly demonize ideas, history, culture, and truth on a whim. We dismiss it and we get rid of it on a whim. We get cynical, don't we, about optimism. When someone says the best is yet to come. So sometimes inside we think, yeah, I believe it when I see it. Because we default to cynicism. We, we get cynical about enthusiasm. You know, when a young person, an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, and they've got all that enthusiasm about their future, inside we think, well, oh, that's just youthful naivety. That'll get crushed by pain. Because we default to cynicism. We can get cynical about God moving. When somebody said, look what God, let's see what God could do through us. Let's see what God could do with us. Let's see how God could work in people's lives. And we get cynical about God moving because we think we've heard so many prophecies. Haggai said it. So many things. And we've got so much unanswered prayer. We can get cynical about the possibility of things changing for the better. 
because we know that life is hard. So instead of being a people with good news to share, news that could change the world, we are literally drowning in the news cycle and clickbait of social media as we're fed a constant diet of hopelessness and despair. And so instead of rejoicing, we can be weeping. We can feel like these people felt in this story. But that's not what God has for us. God is going to rebuild our joy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the real question this morning is, what do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? Another question is, where do you look for joy? If I said to you this morning, if we were chatting in the foyer over a coffee and and I said, where do you go for joy? Like you might not have said Jesus. You might have said, I love to put reruns of my favorite comedian on or or whatever it is. That's where I go for joy. The answer probably is not Jesus. I want to show you this picture. It's a painting in the Sistine Chapel. It's a fantastic piece of art painted by Pietro Perugino. I love that name. Pietro Perugino. And you can see Jesus right at the center in there. But I want to suggest there are three things wrong with that picture of Jesus. You can leave it up while I suggest the three things. It's beautiful. It's incredible art. It's Jesus being depicted at his baptism. And Jeannie and I were meant to go some years ago to Rome. I wanted to see this painting, this fresco, along with lots of other things. And um, the weather stopped our plane from going and taking off. So I have been delayed, but I will not be denied. I'm going to go. The obvious one, three things that are wrong. The obvious one is that Jesus is white. We know that Jesus is a Middle Eastern man who actually spent the first two years of his life in Africa. He's not white, blue-eyed boy. The second thing that's wrong with this painting is he's bone thin. He has got single-figure body fat. Now, I want to suggest that Jesus was not massively overweight. I'm not saying that at all because the amount they moved and he was a carpenter, a construction worker. He is not going to be super unfit. No, no, no. But he was accused of being a glutton. You know, a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, they said he's always eating and he's always drinking. Now, if you're always eating and drinking, no matter how much building you do, you're not going to have single-figure body fat. Even if you're the son of God. I know you don't believe me, but you're not. You're not going to have single-figure body fat. And the third, and most importantly for this message, is he's miserable. He's sad. In fact, in 99% of images of Jesus, he's sad. And the problem, when we depict Jesus as sad, we think our God is sad and joyless. John Ortberg said these words, I love them. He says, we will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. He goes on, he says, God also knows sorrow. Jesus is remembered, amongst other things, as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is a temporary response 
to a fallen world. That sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is God's eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. The psalmist prophesied this about Jesus, speaking about Jesus. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Look at this verse. It says, God is setting Jesus apart from every other human being. What with? Joy. The New Living Translation says it this way, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. That's the Jesus I serve. Like the happiest person in the universe. More joy than anyone else. When Jesus starts his ministry, he quotes Isaiah chapter 61. In Luke chapter 4, we read it. But I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 61, three verses. And I want you to notice as I read all the bits that are good news and full of joy. Are you ready? The spirit of the... And and if if you see one, just say yes. We're not going to stop and pause. I'm going to keep reading. Just say yes. Got that one. All right. Are you ready? Thank you. Just the one of you. Are you ready in Stocksbridge in Rotherham? You can do this. Are you ready? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Yeah, I feel like just putting that garment on right now, don't you? They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Forgive me because I want to bombard you. I want to bombard you this morning with the joy of the Lord. I want, to, I want it to hit you like a wave. Come on. I want, you, I, want to, I want to hit you like a wave this morning. Luke chapter 15, there's three stories. There's the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. They, of course, there's stories about God, how God finds lost things and about how God rescues lost things. But each story, something is lost and it's found. But in each story, it depicts God's kingdom. And the end of each story is a celebration. Jesus is trying to get the message across that God is a God of celebration. Jesus is insisting the work of God demands celebration. The work of God. The church, the gathering of God's people must be a celebration. Celebration is how our world began. Our world didn't begin in mourning. Our world begins in celebration. This is God speaking in the book of Job. Job 38 verses 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? 
On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? I love these thoughts about how God meticulously planned the universe. And Job uses particular measuring and sizing language. But then he, God says to him, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Uh, some of us think angels are just prim and proper. No, they're shouting for joy. You know, when God does something, they're just shouting, there he goes again. He's at it again. There he goes again. The morning stars singing and angels shouting. Genesis 1, you know, you know this now if you've been a part of Icon Church. It's an ancient piece of poetry, but it also contains ancient truth about why God made the world. And in Genesis chapter 1, it It's got this rhythm, God speaks, something happens, he observes, it's good, but it's not just good once, it's good, it's good, it's good, 10 times, it's good, it's very good, it's good, and the angels are shouting, there he goes again, it's created, we were created in the midst of celebration, song, dance, and shouts of joy, there's a great moment in the life of King David, when the, David has been after the ark of God, which represents the presence of God, and he comes and brings it back to the city. And it says this, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, this is the Old Testament, by the way. We have a greater revelation of who God is through Jesus in the New Testament. Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes but by these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. That's 2 Samuel 6. C.S. Lewis, just put that in for Ben Lloyd, who's, who's a fanboy of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this, joy is the serious business of heaven. In the Old Testament rhythm, they had seven festivals, seven awakens every year. It was like Glastonbury for Hebrew people. And they had seven of them. And in Deuteronomy 16, that lists some of them. It says to the people, you must celebrate at these festivals. Don't be somber and dour and you must celebrate. You've got to be joyful in these festivals. Let me finish with this before I just apply it with four quick things. Neuroscience has taught us that there's one area of our brains. It's in the right prefrontal cortex that has the ability to continue growing throughout your life. And so some people, some neuroscientists call it the joy center. 
the Joy Center. One book's authors observed, when the Joy Center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotion, pain, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it is the only part of the brain, listen to this, it is the only part of the brain that overrides the other main drive centers, including food and sexual impulses. You want a new diet? It's called the joy diet. Not only food and sexual impulses can it override, but also terror and rage. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And without sufficient joy in our life and without sufficient joy strength, we spend our lives trying to fill the deficit. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So God has an antidote to our shame. He's got an antidote to our cynicism. It's called celebration. It's called joy. And I want to encourage us, and I'm closing right now, with four simple things that we can do. Maybe you want to write them down and think about them. Spend some time maybe this week thinking about them. Think about how these could look in your life. Here's the first. Simple celebration. Simple celebration. Something every day that gives you pleasure. Things you like that you could just give a time to every day. It doesn't have to be a long period of time or time to. I thought of two things I love to do. First thing in the morning, I love to make a proper coffee. You know what a proper coffee is? Grind the beans. You know, put it in the coffee machine. Weigh it out as well. Weigh it. It's got to be weighed. Weigh it. Put it in the basket. Put it in the coffee machine. Let, let the thing do its espresso magic. Put it in, etc. And then I like to sit and write my journal. Ten minutes. But it gives me, I look forward to that every morning when I wake up. I look forward to doing that. Simple pleasure. Uh, then I was thinking I've got a simple pleasure at the last thing at night. You know, I love vinyl records. So uh, we'll, I love to turn the TV off and sit for 30 minutes and read. Because I love reading, but I put a vinyl record on. A bit of jazz sometimes. Sometimes if Jeannie's still up, a bit of Barbara Streisand, don't judge me <laughs> for Jeannie. Simple pleasures, simple celebrations that you could do every day. Let's call them micro-celebrations. Maybe it's wrestling with your kids. You just switch off from everything else and you wrestle with your kids or you FaceTime in your grandchildren, whatever it is. Whatever you can do. Don't worry about what you can't do but micro-celebrations that you could do every day, simple. The second, what about strategic celebrations? Make sure that there's some things in your calendar, you know, for strategic celebration. These are things that you choose, that you plan. We're going to have dinner at the table together, you know, and we're going to talk to each other. Maybe that's not a celebration, I don't know, but... <laughs> But, but a strategic celebration. At Awaken, we're planning as a church family, aren't we? A strategic celebration to go to Awaken. Maybe join in with that. Maybe on your birthday, rather than just it being another uh, tick over, you know, another, another day, another year. 
a, a strategic celebration, just something you enjoy, something you love. It doesn't have to be elaborate. You don't have to go to Hawaii. You can if you want, but you don't have to. But at strategic celebrations, we are going to celebrate these things. Icon conference. We're all going to conference. Strategic celebration. And then the third thing is spontaneous celebration. Joy can get so much into your soul that you just love to do things spontaneously. Let's have a spontaneous celebration and whatever that is, maybe just a bit of generosity, a bit of playfulness maybe. Or maybe it's this. You know the Greek word for joy or one of the Greek words for joy is skirteo. It means to leap and spring about. I want to I see you, videos of you all leaping down your street. John the Baptist, the Bible tells us, leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary told Elizabeth about the angel's visit and that she was pregnant. He jumped for joy in his mother's womb. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying to the disciples, he's teaching, blessed are you when people persecute you. Now that's odd, isn't it? But he says this, Matthew 5, 12, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Or rejoice at this level that you're going to skip and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers did to the prophets. When was the last time you leapt? You might say, Paul, that was a long time ago. I can't do it now. I know I'm with you, but I can do this. I can do this. David did this as he remembered the goodness of God. He remembered that God had called him and that God had chosen him. Don't leave all the jumping in church to the young people. Come on, let me say that again because that's worth a moment of celebration. Don't leave all the jumping in church to the young people. Don't leave it all to them. And then the last thing is salvation celebration. Simple celebration, micro celebrations every day. Strategic celebrations throughout your calendar. Spontaneous celebration. Just in moments. You know what the people did? What we read? They lifted their hands. Do you leave the lifting of hands in church to charismatic Chris and Pentecostal Petula? Don't leave the lifting of your hands in joy and celebration just to charismatic Chris. Praise the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness. Spontaneous celebration. But then there's salvation celebration. What has God done for you? Some of you are here and you've been in our services today and you see this online and God healed you. Mark it, mark it, celebrate it. Just simple. You could do it simply. You could just say to a friend, would you go out for a coffee with me today? Do you know why I've asked you out for a coffee today? Because I'm celebrating the day God healed me. Some of you can remember the day you raised your hand and you gave your life to Jesus or the date of your baptism. Have some salvation celebration. Do you know I was baptized? Tell, you could tell somebody I was baptized three years ago as a follower of Jesus. And we're just here having some coffee and cake today or we're just here doing whatever, you know, McDonald's or whatever it is. We're just celebrating 
just in this moment. Salvation. Remember them. Remember what God has done. And then we have this weekly celebration, don't we, together in God's house, together. I believe this is a year of rebuilding. And I believe that God is rebuilding our vision, our passion. God is rebuilding order, our participation. But he's also rebuilding our joy. And he's going to take our joy to a whole nother level. And it will be an antidote for us to cynicism. It'll be an antidote to criticism. It'll be an antidote for shame in our lives. Because, and we're going to worship right now, because... Icon Church, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Thank you so much.